Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Jenny Bevin, a 10-time Oscar-nominated costume designer and two-time Oscar winner whose credits include Sherlock Holmes, The King's Speech, Mad Max Fury Road, and Disney's newest release, Cruella, starring Emma Stone as the iconic villain from 101 Dalmatians. In today's conversation, Jenny and I discuss a wide range of topics, among them an in-depth chat on the design of Mad Max Fury Road and the experience of shooting the film without a finished screenplay, the hypnotic costumes of my favorite movie from 2017, A Cure for Wellness, how the pandemic has affected Jenny's career decisions moving forward, and what we can expect from her latest work on Cruella, with Jenny and her team reinventing the iconic Disney character in a punk rock London of the 1970s. All of this, and much more. In discussing some of Jenny's mentors, we also mention Anthony Powell, an Oscar-winning costume designer who was a frequent collaborator of Steven Spielberg's on films that include Hook and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Anthony passed away just last month at the age of 85, and hopefully hearing about him will be an incentive for listeners to revisit his wonderful work. Look for Soundstage Access on social media to catch a preview of the guests we'll be interviewing next. But now, without further ado, Let's go to our conversation. Jenny, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. I'm incredibly excited. There's a couple of projects we're going to be talking about, but before we get to anything specific, I'm curious to ask you a little bit about when you receive a screenplay, you described it in this way, quote, prepping a movie is really about list making, making lists of each of the character, the clothes they may need, and how many doubles. When it comes to research, there's nothing like flipping through a book and soon enough, I'm making mood boards with old fashioned cut and paste, close quote. So when the sky is the limit, how do you try and assemble mood boards that are rich enough to offer a lot of ideas to a director, but not too rich where they become kind of overwhelming? I think you just get quite good at making choices and focusing. Obviously, when I first read a script, I do get an overall picture in my head normally. I sort of see it, you know, like you see a radio play. And then when when I do the lists, I'm focusing down on each character. And it's the same when I look through magazines, when I look on the internet, when I look at actual clothes in a costume house, if clothes exist, of the period we're doing. You just seem, I think, as a designer to have an instinct to pull all the images that feel right for you. So the mood board thing, is a really, really good way of of giving a sense of a character or of a crowd. Like we did in Cruella, we did some big balls, so we could give a real sense of how we were going to show the colours, the richness of decoration, and just sort of give a real sense. And I think you do take care, exactly as you said, not to overdo it. You can totally overwhelm. And I know it's something one learns over years to just be cautious about too much information. You know, some things you just know they're right and other things are just completely wrong. So making those choices is part of your job. 
The first project I kind of want to dive into because again, I thought we would grab three that are so separate between them and show them variety, not just of genre, but scale. Good plan. Yeah. And the first one obviously is the most overwhelming and that's Mad Max Fury Road. I'm kind of curious to ask you a little bit about the unique experience of prepping the film in Australia without a script. The film was started 10 years before you even joined yep. and you were shooting in the Namibian desert by the time the summer 2012 rolls around. You know, because you joined the show fairly late in the process, I can imagine there was kind of a lot of concept and storyboards already in place. So which character designs that were already set in stone, George Miller, the director, really liked? And which ones do you think changed the most through pre-production? Okay, I think the most set in stone was Immortan Joe in terms of his carapace and his strange skirt. They've been Japanese influence on that very, very early on. What I did was really take the idea of the carapace, which was obviously protecting his rotting flesh, and then we decorated it and made it more personal. And his actual maw, that, you know, the sort of strange mask with the teeth, that was very much generated by my artists and my model makers and concept people. So there were a lot of elements. I mean, there were wonderful storyboards and this sort of graphic novel of Brendan McCarthy we were all following. But we sort of pushed things. The War Boys were much more S&M before I took over, as they were in The Road Warrior, really. And we, I think we made them just more modern. Rictus wasn't really thought through at all. He was definitely a creation, organic mechanic, and Furiosa herself, you know, one took the elements and she's got the arm, obviously. Um, that's all totally part of her story. So how do you strap the arm on? There was a lot of practicality, which in some ways, I don't want to say anything bad about my predecessor. And she really, really didn't want to do it. And in fact, I think she's passed on since. I think she was quite elderly and, and not particularly well when we eventually got to making Mad Max. But it was definitely a style from more of sort of from the 80s almost. And I felt that we just needed to give it yeah, a more butch look. And actually with George, what he loves is everything has a purpose. So the war boys, who all they've got is their trousers. So they've got lots of pockets to keep stuff in because that's all they've got. And it gives them a lovely sort of bulked up look. But then the tattoos and all that were Leslie Vandervelt, the amazing makeup artist. We worked totally in tandem. I think the girls were mine in terms of George wanted this wrapped look. He'd seen a ballet and we then took that wrapping and developed it a little further. But there was a sort of solid base in a lot of the looks. You touch on a lot of things and that's what I like in regards to designing costumes that cater as much to style as they do to function. This concept of just because we're in the wasteland doesn't mean things can't be beautiful. You had this to say about it. Quote, every character in the film is designed according to what they need. George's brief was that if anything had a more important use for survival in the wasteland, then it shouldn't be used for decoration. 
I got from Australia something like 200 boxes of junk, bits of metal, cloth, spare car parts, and rather than sketching ideas, I began directly to applying these items on mannequins or real bodies. Close quote. What was your creative process in regards to turning these real life scraps into costumes that also feel beautiful in an unconventional way? Gosh, I'm glad they feel beautiful. Some of them I think did, and they were so beautifully photographed. And the Namibian desert is the most amazing backdrop. You know, you have to give credit to some extraordinary, extraordinary talented crew members. But my sense of drawing, A, I'm not very good at drawing. I panic about drawing. It's not my natural medium. And I feel it's very two-dimensional. Actors and people are three-dimensional and bring body language to their part. So it feels a bit false to draw. Although some people draw and it works brilliantly, but it's not for me. So I've always worked directly onto model stands. If clothes exist, i.e. I'm doing something Victorian, I will go to a costume house and pull what feels right for a character and dress a model stand. Or some hapless passerby, I'll dress them up to get a sense of what it looks like not hanging on a hanger. With something like Mad Max, as you said, we had tons of boxes that had been sort of squirreled away in Fox Studios in Sydney. So I had them brought to Namibia and we had a lot of stands, model, you know, mannequins. And I had workrooms so I could get basic shapes made as something I could then, you know, put stuff on. And we wrapped and um, added an appliqued and dressed up and, and just had real fun, actually, trying out all sorts of weird bits. And I mean, from cardboard to old plastic to stuff, I did look at the most amazing work of a guy who's called the Junk Man of Africa. I can't remember what his name is, but there's some extraordinary African artists working with recycled stuff. And that I found very inspirational. I looked at a lot of actually recycling and strange modern artworks. But the Africans really seem to know, they have a, a nose for it. So that was the process of just thinking through each character. And George, I would hate to call him a control freak, but he's definitely a man of vision who really wants to have a part in everything. And, you know, it's totally his storytelling. So he had an input into a lot of, of everything, really. It was just a long process of dressing and trying and gluing. We had metal workers, we had mold makers, we had really interesting prop makers, a lot of local kids, actually, who make stuff for the tourist trade. So they had a very organic way of making clothing and, and accessories. So I was blessed with my crew who also brought ideas to the table. I would love to know more about your collaboration with Leslie Vanderwalt, the hair and makeup designer, yeah. as well as Colin Gibson, you know, the production designer. So I was wondering how you, Leslie and Colin, merged your teams in regards to collaboration. And if you soon found a way of trading ideas back and forth in a way that felt not just organic, but very efficient. Mm. Well, Leslie and Colin have been on the project all the way. I was the new girl, so I was very keen to learn from them. And I started, obviously, in Sydney when I went there. I met with them both. Leslie was fantastically helpful in showing me everything she was doing. And she was always doing makeup tests. This was very early days on just extras who were brought in to be made up. So I would, you know, watch what she was doing. And then we'd discuss how clothing would work with it. Colin, I went to see his vehicle workshop in Sydney. And also the incredible props he was making of, sort of wonderful wristbands which incorporated knives and stuff beautifully made because the one thing they all had was time. They didn't necessarily have a lot of materials, but they, they had time to do stuff. And then in Namibia, 
of course, it's not a huge country. We were all fairly close together. We'd all be out on set. So it was quite easy. It wasn't like London, where sometimes you're terribly separated. You know, the costume place may be in one part of London, the studio's out somewhere else, and all the rest of it. You, you know, there's always space issues. And there weren't that many of us there. So we all became really friendly, you know. I mean, it was a fairly seamless collaboration. I mean, particularly for me and Les, because that look had to be complete. My name is Max. My world is fire and blood. Why are you hurting these people? It's the oil, stupid. Oil wars. We are killing for gasoline. The world is actually running out of water. There's the water wars. Water wars. Once. I was a cop, a road warrior searching for a righteous cause. To the terminal freakout point. Mankind has gone rogue, terrorizing itself. Thermal nuclear experiment. The Earth is sour. Our bones are poisoned. We have become half-life. As the world fell, each of us in our own way was broken. It was hard to know who was more crazy. Me or everyone else. What's kind of mind-blowing about Mad Max is that, from my understanding, it was shot in very fragmented ways. You know, because you don't have a script, George has to keep it all together. So what was your experience of shooting the movie in that way? And how did the project evolve from the way you thought you were going to approach it to the way you actually did? The method of shooting didn't affect us at all because basically you dress the actor at the beginning of the day and whether they shoot it in, you know, two-second fragments or not, actually, other than keeping them comfortable and making sure the continuity stays together. I think for them, it was very, very hard because they never got a run at it. They never did a master shot where you, you know, sort out the overall sense of the scene. It was done like he was shooting every frame of the storyboard individually. But that's the way George does it. And I couldn't believe how amazing it actually came together at the end. But just back to the thing before, actually, I do remember when I first saw in Morton Joe in the whole kit and caboodle with his car, I remember now getting unbelievably excited by, oh my God, that's what it should look. Yes, we've, you know, we've cracked it, which you don't always feel and you don't always admit to feeling because it feels a bit smug, but it was an incredible moment. And I just guess on any film, you do sort of fall into the lifestyle for the length of the film and it does all become the norm. And Living in somewhere like Namibia, which is so different to London, was so weird and strange, but that became the norm. And, you know, the cars we drove on the rough roads we drove them on became the norm. And you was always going 100 kilometres over a sand road somewhere or other. I don't know. It, I think we're a bit like gypsies, you know, to use the word nicely. But we, as film crew, we sort of go places and find a way of doing it and then that becomes our norm. And then normally when we come home, you sort of flip out of it like in a minute. I think that's the way we survive, actually, because you have to put yourself so 100% into it while you're shooting. You know, it just is a very all-consuming world. And then I guess that's why it just becomes the norm. Allow me to ask you a little bit about your relationship with your assistant costume designers. You have to worry about so many technicalities, ordering the fabrics weeks in advance, making multiple copies. How do you work with your wardrobe team in regard to handling time and budget when you're making your way through the pre-production? And what do you choose to delegate? And what should you take on yourself as a costume designer? Well, on something as huge 
as Mad Max and Nutcracker and Cruella I've just done, you rely enormously on your supervisor and the supervisor crews and they manage the budget. Although I get very involved in the crew and the budget, I, it's not my sole responsibility. And depending on the scale of the production, you have people, buyers who will take on board all the necessary getting of fabric and then buying for the sewers so they've got elastic and Velcro and whatever, and for the um, prop makers and the dyers and the printers and all the rest of it. The assistant, or I prefer to call them associate costume designer, is my springboard, my sounding board, and also respect their ideas and they bring a lot to the productions and they back me up and make sure when I have some sort of wild idea that that then that gets followed through or they make sure I want it to be followed through. I always say that my job is really to make sure the director's happy and if there's something the director doesn't like in closing it's my fault whether it's on a you know supporting artist or a major artist and obviously I do not dress all the supporting artists. Sometimes we have crowds of 300. I don't even fit them, but I get all the photographs. Or I pop in, if we're all in the same place at Shepton, I pop in and out. But basically, someone else does it and I make sure I approve it. And then they do a lineup on the day to make sure I like them and all that. But when they hit the set, it's my responsibility of what they actually, everybody looks like, down to everything that's a costume or a costume accessory. And provided he or she does like it, my job is done. But it's tremendous. I mean, I have two terrific supervisors I use a lot, and they both bring their own teams. And the most important person I find in each team is the um, crowd supervisor, and they organize the fittings of the crowds and supervise each fitting. And they are so clever. Tim Aslam and Joe Kovlevsky for the relative. I mean, they just do phenomenal fittings, things I couldn't think up. And then they bring other people on board who are sort of specialists, who then sort of go into enormous detail about, like we did five balls in Cruella. So all the servants sort of had to dress appropriately. I I mean, I just haven't time to think about that, but they love the detail. Sarah, my assistant on, on many shows, starting with Mad Max, you know, on Cruella, she was always finding more and more wonderful shoes for the Baroness and gloves and, and bags. I mean, God, we had more bags hanging around our, our office. I mean, it was, you know, that sort of incredible attention to detail. I'm very good at overall. I'm the storyteller, but I have all these people. And Sally Turner's also brilliant, such a good friend as well, because I have known her for a very long time. We started on the Bostonians together, so you can see how long we've known each other. But again, they they just bring another dimension. But if anyone asks me, I can always give a really good spiel about what I think it should look like and how people are. And I normally start each process, each principle, I'll do something that gives the lead as to what direction we're going in. But, you know, on these massive shows, you cannot actually do every single bit yourself. But it's really imparting really good information, really good direction to the people so they can then follow through. And if you don't like something, then you say, but you try and offer what it is you would like instead. But there's a lot of people. We had three three of us, four designers on Cruella, me, Sarah, Shearer and Sally, all doing different characters and, you know, pulling it together. I love it. (laughs) There is a sickness inside us, rising like the bile that leaves that bitter taste at the back of our throats. 
there and every one of you seated around the table. Only when we know what ails us can we hope to find the cure. What do you make of that? Clearly he's lost his mind. Our thoughts exactly. We'd like you to go to Switzerland and bring Mr. Pembroke back to us. What we offer here is a process of purification away from the pressures of the modern world. Your plan is to take Mr. Pembroke back with you. Is that a problem? He's a patient, not a prisoner. I can't not ask you about my favorite movie of 2017, a psychological thriller which received mixed reviews by critics, but to me is criminally underrated. <laughs> and that's a cure for wellness. Yes. Most of the film's visual palette is made up of muted colors. The movie starts with Lockhart, which is played by Dane DeHaan, who's called up to a business room where nearly every board member is wearing very dark suits, like almost black. Lockhart is sent to Switzerland and arrives wearing a beige raincoat, but by the time he suffers the injury and becomes one of the patients himself, he's dressed in white, just like everyone else at the Institute. Yeah. On a thematic level, it looks like the lighter the color, the more pure the values of the characters. How did director Gore Verbinski first explain the movie to you, and how do you use tone and colors or absence of colors in your costumes? Well, Gore, again, a bit like... George Miller is a very, very visual director and has a scheme he wants. I can't remember the detail of how we got to all the looks, but again, I did a lot of mood boards and he had an amazing photographic reference file that he'd compiled. I mean, directors often do that these days. Craig Gillespie did on Cruella. It's a way I think they find their way into a movie is to do a lot of research. So we had wonderful research and obviously the whole institutional thing is, tends to be white, especially if you go into the iconic. So I guess when we start in wherever we are, New York, it's iconic business people. I think they were navy blue, but maybe the way it was lit, they came out as black. What I felt about it was it's such a weird, strange story that what we wanted was not to, to try and go as timeless as possible. And I think Eve Stewart completely got that in the sets. I mean, I was absolutely knocked out by what she did. I thought it was amazing. I mean, Gore's terribly specific about certain things. And then seemingly quite happy that I did, you know, my work and, and other bits. But, but I think, it, you know, it was, it was great because he, he, he also gave it that weird, timeless, and also uh, Boyan Bazelli, the cameraman, who was just extraordinary. I think it's one of the best-looking movies, and I agree with you, criminally underrated. I don't like the end, but that's my thing, you know, whatever. But the re I mean, there's so much in the rest of it of the strangeness, which I think was unbelievably well captured. But Gore, Gore said he wanted slight variation in some of the dressing robes the patients wore, which we called patient wear, obviously. And I couldn't see why we did that, but we did. And I think afterwards he said, yeah, you were right, we should have kept... I don't think anyone notices, but they, there's a slight variation. I just thought, come on, they should be, you know, absolutely standardised institution look to them all. But, I mean, one of the extraordinary problems was getting enough fabric because we had about 300 patients, because they were all in white, we had to have, you know, we, I think we did sets of at least three, so that one could be in the wash and one on the patient, and one for disasters, you know. Actually getting that amount of white fabric proved extraordinarily difficult. It was very tightly controlled um, colour-wise, but that's something I like doing anyhow. 
I try to preface people by telling them it's strange, but they're really, really going to enjoy it because there's nothing quite like it. Mm. Yes, no, I mean, yes, let's get them all, all watching. Let's give it a second. Let's give it a revival. Let me, let me just ask you to wrap up this portion of, the, of Uncure for Wellness. I was trying to study Hannah's costume. It seems to be kind of in a bluish tone, and it really made me think a lot about Alice in Wonderland. So I was wondering what the conversation was for you in regards to how to visually make her stand out. Yeah, she, she was definitely supposed to be different. She's his daughter, isn't she? And I was looking at things that were quite ethereal, and I found a dress in a costume house that just seemed to have the right elements, made a double layer of organza, so you've got a lot of light through it, which seemed sort of sweet and innocent and strange and of no period. At one point, we were going to think of doing her in red, so she was like the little girl in Don't Look Now, or you saw a little red, strange character, but that seemed then wrong. And I did make a red dress and I showed it to Gore and I said, I just don't think this is working. And he said, no, he loved the pale colours. And then of course she's in white when she's in the swimming pool. So she had a sort of turquoisey blue, more of an Alice in Wonderland blue, and she had white dress. Those were her three. And they were definitely different. They were little girl and Mia Goth is so strange, little girl, elements, qualities. But often this, you see, happens to me. I'm, I'm wandering around and I fall over a dress or a piece of fabric or something, but I think it's because your mind is so concentrating on the characters and the world of that film that you then see things. Do you know it's like when somebody mentions something, suddenly they're all over the place, but they were always there, but you didn't notice them before, if you know what I mean. Something in the water? At the bottom. I don't see anything. I saw you before. You a patient here? She's just so much younger than everyone else. Director Volmer says I'm a special case. What about you? Are you here for the cure? No. Actually, I was just leaving. No one ever leaves. You've always talked about the influence of the great costume designers who have, you know, come before you. Piero Tosi, who worked a lot with uh, Visconti and Zeffirelli. We have Anthony Powell, who is uh, Spielberg's go-to designer on many films, including Indiana Jones. Yeah. And you yourself have worked with John Bright. You know, you guys won the Oscar for A Room with a View. So I was wondering, what did their work teach you on a creative level? And why do you think they were so successful in regards to taking color lines and texture and translating them into emotion through their technical choices? They just have very good instincts, I think. You know, Toes is Il Gattopardo, is it? The, the... Il Gattopardo, yes. It was all of something like 26, wasn't he, when he did it. It's just the most extraordinary work. And you can't see him in it. I think that's what I like about his work particularly, is his variety. I mean, if you look at God, the variety of opera, theatre, film, and you can't see him in it. And I think that's what I try and do. I don't want you to see me in my work, it's storytelling. And Anthony Powell also, but again, it depends on the work you're asked to do. So when you're asked to do something like 101 Dalmatians, it has to look pretty over the top and, you know, fantastic. His work was so inventive. But again, it was always within the framework of the whole movie. 
What I don't like is when the costumes irritate me or I'm noticing them, unless you're meant to notice them, like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert or something, where it would be a terrible shame if you didn't notice them or Strictly Ballroom. And John, of course, is my mentor in all things. He's probably the most knowledgeable person on period clothing in the world at the moment. And we were both storytellers, but we both loved clothes. But he knew more about the actual clothing and the you know, the period and the cut and all that. And I probably just knew more about the story and the, the characters because we divided it that way. And then we come together in the evening when Cosprop, the costume house, had closed and, and start putting up all our ideas together together. From the very beginning, I realised I saw the world differently than everyone else. That didn't sit well with some people. But I wasn't for everyone. I guess they were always scared that I'd be a psycho. <laughs> Allow me to ask you about the last project of today, which is obviously Cruella. Yes. You mentioned how Anthony Powell designed the live action film in 96. And I think what's interesting about the 1961 animated is that Mark Davis, who was one of the animators, he used very powerfully this red inside Cruella's coat, which I thought was all the more striking because we seem to associate the character of Cruella with a monochromatic look, you know, that connects her to the dogs. Anita, darling, how are you? Miserable, darling, as usual, perfectly wretched. Where are they? Where are they? For heaven's sakes, where are they? Who, Cruella? I don't... The puppies, the puppies! No time for games. Where are the little brutes? Oh, it'll be at least three weeks. No rushing these things, you know. <laughs> Anita, you're such a wit. What kind of technical choices can you make to Emma's wardrobe in regards to creating a design that feels completely original, but emotionally familiar at the same time? Yeah, exactly. That was the challenge. I looked very briefly at the Glenn Close and I looked very briefly at the animation. I didn't want to get too involved because our story is so different. The thing we did slightly, we loved the Jasper and Horace characters and their colours, so they get slightly picked up on, but even our Jasper and Horace are I think very different characters to um, the ones in, in 101 Dalmatians. So basically, I think I approached it fresh. You know, you've got this wonderful story of how she grows up. And when I read it, I will say that at the very beginning, and I don't think we ever shot it because we have terrible trouble with our toddlers, but even from a toddler, she's dressing up from her mother's laundry basket. So the first thing I did really was I got hold of a toddler mannequin and dressed it up with sort of weird things I just found around that could have been in the, the laundry basket to, to give myself a sense of where we were going to go with this. So that then set me off on a thing of, obviously at the moment, also recycling, but she comes from a very poor background, so it is going to be about inventiveness with what she can find and get. And when she gets to school, she then does the most shocking things to her uniform. But the story propelled us. And I think that's when it it's an instinct. It's not about me deciding, oh, you know, I think it will go from black to red to yellow. It's about how does the story drive us? What does she need? How can you make this fun? What would someone in those circumstances do? And then she becomes, you know, through whatever, she starts sewing and she 
things sort of lead to other things. And that's how the costume then becomes interesting because it's not driven by fashion or by some weird, you know, oh, I love leggings and I love the look of this or that. It becomes driven by this character and what she is and who she becomes and what her skills are. Emma's hair color in the movie seems to go from red to blonde, from blonde to the iconic black and white. And I was wondering, you know, whether through costumes and makeup, how did you work with Craig, the director, to try and color code the different chapters of the evolution through the course of the movie? I mean, in one ways, it's about the most fun job I've ever done. It was also one of the most terrifying because I came onto that pretty late. So what we did was we did wonderful mood boards, some of the best ever, for all the backgrounds, not just the characters, but the um, crowd. So you could see all the colours and, and we had a real colour coding thing going on there. With Emma and Cruella, again, I did Portobello, I did every vintage store, I did, we're supposed to be set in the, oh my God, 70s, isn't it? 70s. So I got hold of anything I could. And when they brought stuff in for the crowd costume, I used to go and cherry pick stuff and build up a look. And then actually I dressed up Sarah a lot of the time. She's got a very good, we're not far off Emma Stone's measures. She's very slim and, and perfect. So she got dressed up. And so we we made a list of all the different looks she needed. You know, listing is so, it's such a good thing to do. It really clears your head. And then we'd try and see, go down the rack and think, oh, that might work for that scene. Oh, that might work. You know, oh, that might be good for, when she's trying to be more sober or somber or fit in more. And that might be when she's started being a bit more wacky. And that could be when she goes to a certain club or whatever. So you build up a big, it's like a notebook on wraps of clothing. And then we went to LA and we met Emma and we took, I think we had at least seven rather large suitcases all crammed in the back of a car. Luckily she's got a garage. So we set up wraps in there and unloaded everything and put it in. We'd got it all in order. We were very well prepped. And then basically we started trying stuff on her. And she's wonderful. She gives so much. You could just put on a pair of jeans and she'd work it, you know. So that was absolutely brilliant. And out of that first session, I think we got about 35 different looks. I mean, we, what I do is I normally say a pair of trousers is really working I'll then do a whole lot of tops with that pair of trousers and then you go to a top and you try you know so you're sort of and I I rarely have to do quite so many looks I think she ended up with well just enormous arms we didn't use all of them from that first fitting but it gave us a real sense of where we were going and trying to show a progression of where this girl had come from where she was going to and doing it with ready-made clothing then get back to Shepperton and our workrooms and we had some incredibly clever cutters who all took various aspects of Corella and for their various skills. One was a real Ian Wallace. He's incredible at taking four pieces of clothing and cutting them up and putting them together to make something completely different. Dominic Young is a very fine sort of master tailor type of cutter. So he would make the very tailored garments. Kirsten Fletcher does a world of wearable arts. She does incredible, just extraordinary, massive construction costumes I call them you know so I did have the crew of your dreams to make and also bring their ideas you know so I'd show them the way I think it was going and then one of them had always had a fancy to cut a certain sort of strange cape coat and so he did and it was wonderful you know it was that if you give people freedom but you've given them clear clear sort of direction but you then give them freedom and then you say how wonderful it is you get the most amazing results 
brings new opportunities. And I was ready to make a statement. How does the saying go? I am woman, hear me roar. My last question to you for today regards your legacy and again, the storytelling responsibility that, that you can have as a costume designer. Quote, I gravitate towards working on really good stories. It can be any period in the deep past, the present, or the distant future. For me, it's never really about the clothes. It's about the storytelling aspects of those clothes. So I was just wondering, you know, what, what do you think has kept you so busy over the last 40 plus years in the business? And what has the conversation been like with yourself in regards to the work you have produced and the work you're still looking to produce? Well, that's extremely interesting because of what's happened with this pandemic, which I think is making a lot of people reassess everything about their lives and their work in that I don't think we're going to be making films the way we have been with these huge crews and for some time. I mean, it depends how they do, obviously, with vaccines and how they do with just getting over it. I mean, I cannot even envisage how it will be. So in terms of the future... I see my life very differently. In fact, I've become involved in London with a charity, nothing to do with film or clothing or anything, just something completely different, which I'm finding absolutely enthralling. My daughter, who does film and theatre production, is looking at all the little plays she did of two-handers. She did a wonderful play called Boa with Harriet Walter and her husband, Guy Paul, so they're already a household. So, you know, they can act together. If you keep a crew relatively isolated or something, maybe you can. But I think the whole thing, and by now, I'm not sure I want to do another as big as Cruella. I think that might be my swan song in the big movies. And I'd move more into just, I don't know, not exactly producing, but working with producers and sharing knowledge, and maybe more teaching. I love and really enjoy, I've done a little bit of teaching and I find that absolutely fascinating. And in the past, it is interesting, the films that you remember and are tremendously proud of. And it's always the ones that are complete films, i.e. Remains of the Day, which isn't spectacular costume-wise because it's a very set thing and it's an awful lot of suits and servants in and all that. But actually, it's such an amazing overall film. I'm so proud to have been part of it. Similarly, The Gathering Storm for HBO with Albert Finney as Churchill. It was made for television, but I'm as proud of that as I am of many a big film I've done. Cure for Wellness, I'm incredibly proud of. I'm so glad you loved that one. I think I'll be proud of Cruella from what I've seen. I think we did a, a good job. And Mad Max, I'm tremendously proud of. And that changed my career and opened my horizons at the age when a lot of my friends were retiring, but um, I haven't quite yet. But so, yeah, I don't know, really. I'm just so grateful, you know, that you took the time to to talk to us. And thank you. I mean, thank you so much for everything. Really. It's a real pleasure because actually I really enjoy talking about it. It's a career I've loved. And it is strange. I've never stopped for so long, obviously totally enforced. And actually finding a different pace of life and going back to simpler things is very, very good. And I'm not sure I really want to cope with the hugeness of Hollywood anymore. But I certainly probably want to still be involved in some way in filmmaking. But I may change my mind. But, you know, it's been such an interesting period to stop and reflect. Anyway, good everything you're doing. And, and I hope, um, hope it all goes well. You keep saying you got and there you have it, folks. Thank you to Jenny for calling in to record this episode. 
as well as Eric for doing the final mixing. You can now find Cruella in theaters or on Disney+. If you enjoy your program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners discover the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.